Well, you know, the only faithful and forever and constant thing in our entire life or in our entire existence is going to be God's faithfulness. Amen, church? Listen, as everything else around us fails and falls apart, we know that our God never does and never will. And that's because, church, we serve a good God. We serve a God who cares for his people. We serve a God who tends to his flock, never leaves us nor forsakes us. And church, I pray this morning that as we continue in just celebration of how good God is, that we would remember that. You know, as we continue our study in the book of Galatians, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, uh, picking up in verse 10. Um, you know, and what this whole study has really been about it's been about Paul revealing and reminding these churches in this region of Galatia of the freedom that they have in Jesus and how that is not a manufactured freedom it is not a freedom that is dependent on their performance but it is a freedom that is founded in the grace of God and the faith that we have in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and how that is an, uh, a foundation at which we live and we stand on. It's not something we hide behind. It's not something that we use as a reason to, to pull back or to sin, but it is the, the hope at which we live our lives. It is the hope at which that we live as Christian parents. It's the hope at which we live as Christian employees, as people uh, in our circles and in our lives that we interact with, that we share the gospel with. And there's just so much, you know, I, I pray that if, um, you know, I'm so thankful that we have the podcast and we're able to kind of go back and to listen back. So I, I pray that you would do that if, if you uh, would like to catch back up to where we are. But, you know, a lot of times when you step into a series in the middle of it, you can feel like you've walked into a movie halfway through and you're kind of curious of what's going on and where we're at. But ultimately, if we could sum everything we've talked about up to this point and what Paul just continues to reveal to us is that the grace of God is the very element of the gospel that we can't lose sight of. And that every other world system, every other world religion would tell us and teach us that what you gain from a holy deity is what you give to that holy deity. But for us as believers, as Christians this morning, what we celebrate is that our God does not need anything from us. That our God is on the throne and that there's nothing that we do that changes his plans, that takes anything away from him or adds to him. But what he has called us to do is he's called us to glorify him and enjoy him forever that's what he's embraced us and invited us to do and so this morning what paul continues to remind the people of galatia about is the grace of god what god is doing through faith in jesus and what jesus has done on our behalf galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 say this we could read that together <clears throat> Verse 10, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit. 
through faith. Church, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for the law which points us to holiness and righteousness, but God, I thank you that that law was not meant to save us. God, that I thank you that where the law fell short, that your grace carried us through. Father, I pray that we would see the heart of Paul in this letter to these people, the heart of a pastor, a heart of a warrior fighting for gospel freedom and the grace of God for a group of people deceived by a different gospel. Lord, I pray, God, I pray that we would be a church. I pray that we would be a people holding firmly to the true gospel of grace. God, let us not to be deceived or brought to any other gospel. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul had delivered the gospel of grace to these people in the churches of Galatia, in this region of Galatia. And what had happened is, is these men, they would be called Judaizers, came in and they told them that, that yes, that it's, it's by faith in Jesus, um, but not only by faith in Jesus, but also adding to this, but also this. Uh, and what Paul is telling them is that anytime someone tells you that salvation is by faith, through grace, but also this, he's telling them that it's wrong because these Judaizers came in and they were taking Jewish, Jewish traditions and they were interjecting them into the Christian faith and they were saying not only do you have to put your faith in Jesus, but also you must be circumcised, but also you must abide by these other aspects of the law. And so uh, after Paul, shortly after Paul had left presenting that gospel to them, these other people were coming in and they were teaching a false gospel. And Paul is just passionately writing to these people because he understands that if they believe any other gospel, it is not the gospel of Christian liberty. It is not the gospel of grace in Jesus, and it is not the gospel that empowers us to live the life that God has for us and to navigate life at which he has given us. This is a gospel of legalism, a gospel of works, uh, to earn salvation rather than receiving it. And this affects the liberty at which we live and the life at which we walk. And we would say those words, and there's a lot of things that we'll say this morning that seem just so distant from us, seem so unapproachable, maybe seem so unapplicable to us. But these words are more applicable to us than we would acknowledge because we, are, we have been a part of or we see churches who navigate in this type of gospel, this very works-based gospel where uh, we've talked about it. There are churches who front load the gospel, who say, uh, to get to grace, you must do this, 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 and this. Well, then a lot of churches, maybe they don't do the front loading, but maybe they do this, where they back load the gospel, where the gospel of grace is free for you to come, but once you've come, there's all these things behind it, that to keep the gospel, to keep grace, to keep the faith that you have in Jesus, you must do this, 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 and this, which is also a false gospel. And what Paul continuously kind of is bringing us back to, and what he spends chapters 3 and chapters 4 trying to explain to us and getting into chapters uh, 5 is he's trying to reveal to us even more detail as he navigates this, the true gospel and what that means for our life and how that looks and how we navigate it. Because Paul knew living by the law did not lead to liberty and it did not lead to life. It did not lead to freedom. It did not lead to this place where it encouraged people to step out in their faith. 
but it actually was a prison. It was actually something confining people. And so when we talk about the law, remember we talked about if we want to simplify it to a way that's easy for us to understand and maybe something we've interacted with before, uh, a simple version of law would be the Ten Commandments. And so if we walk down the Ten Commandments, we could see that there are parts of that that we've fallen to, right? And so what basically these men were telling the Galatians is if they weren't upholding the law, and accomplishing all the aspects that the law required, that they would not have a place at God's table, nor would they be accepted by God. But Paul is telling them that that is not the case. And we have been a part of churches, been a part of uh, there are religions, uh, denominations that would tell you otherwise, that there is things to do, things to accomplish before God would accept you, before God has a plan and purpose and work for you to accomplish. And Paul tells them here, what we'll see more is that that is not the case. And so if I had to uh, subtitle this morning, I would call it Rely on Faith. That our title, subtitle this morning would be to Rely on Faith. And there are two things this morning that I pray that we see that Paul is teaching in these verses 10 through 14 that we can learn, uh, that we could learn about the law and that we could learn about grace. The first thing would be this this morning, that living by the law, it is all or nothing. That to live by the law is all or nothing. Galatians 3.10, he says this, he says, For all who rely on works are under a curse. Or under a curse. So that word, a curse, would mean and kind of communicate this idea of a doomed one. One who has no hope. One who has no escape. One who has no path of redemption or reconciliation. A cursed one. And the way that we can understand this is we know that, that in the beginning that a curse fell upon us, that a curse fell upon us, that a curse, this curse brings us to hell, and it brings us to hell justly because we've broken the law. It has separated us from God, and it has separated us from his blessings for eternity. We no longer could live righteously because of the fall. We no longer could live righteously because in the beginning, our, uh, our earthly uh, father, our original father, Adam, chose himself. Uh, he, uh, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and because of that, we inherited uh, their fallen nature. And because of that, we choose rebellion more than we choose right. If we're honest with ourselves, if we truly evaluate our nature, we choose what is wrong way more than we choose to do what is right. And so because of that, we have fallen under a curse. And because of that, God gave us the law to point us to holiness and righteousness, to remind us about what goodness looks like. Because in the beginning, we fell so far away from goodness, God gave us something to remind us of what goodness was. But he tells us in Deuteronomy that that, that law was not only a blessing to point us to holiness and righteousness, but it's also a curse. In Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28, he says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after the gods that you have not known. <clears throat> and he continues in Galatians 10, <clears throat> and he says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the law. Church, God had given us the law to point us to holiness and righteousness. But Paul reminds us and tells us that unless we keep the law in its entirety, 
Unless we keep the law in its entirety, we are under a curse. And what Paul is quoting here, which I think is another awesome thing about this, he's quoting a source from roughly 600 years before he would have written this. He is quoting uh, Deuteronomy 27, 26, where it says, Cursed is he who does not put the words of the law into practice, which I think is a great revelation of the cohesiveness of the Bible, where somebody like Paul would quote something from 600 years prior to his existence and use that as a reference to show not only that God's plan has never changed and that God's word is complete, but to show us that God's word stands firm, that nothing can, can take it away, nothing can change it. And James mentions, uh, mentions the same idea in James chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Church, it's not portions of the law, because listen, I think there are portions of the law that we can, we can keep, that we can accomplish. But it's not portions, but it's all. Church, there are 600, roughly 613 laws mentioned in the Old Testament. Laws of moral standards, laws of civil standards, laws of ceremonial standards. And the thing is, the law is not a bad thing. The law is a very beautiful thing. The law is a representation of holiness. The law is a representation of righteousness. But holiness and righteousness that we cannot obtain even by our best efforts. You know, and so if we use the Ten Commandments as a standard and we say, well, thou shalt not lie. Okay, well, we've already fallen in that because if, if any of you have lived your entire life at this point and not lied, you are better than I and you would be lying in that moment right there. You know, but then we would say, well, you know, uh, another one, you know, we have uh, thou shalt not murder. And we say, well, I've never killed anybody, but Jesus would go even further in the, uh, in, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, well, if you've even been angry or hated your brother, then you have committed murder. So Jesus didn't let us off easy. You know, he say, you know, if you've even uh, lust, you've committed adultery, even if you haven't participated in an act. So he's just showing us, he's showing us that we have failed in so many ways that even if we keep some of it perfectly, we can't keep all of it perfectly, and that we fall. And because of that fall, because of that failure, in even one instance, we have found ourselves under a curse. But, thankfully, Paul continues on here in Galatians 3.11, and he says, he lets us know quickly, begins to differentiate between the law and faith. And he says, in verse 11, he says, no one is justified before God by the law. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. And when we talk about faith, what are we talking about? We're talking about belief. We're talking about trust. We're talking about confidence. And again, Paul quoting a, a prophet from the Old Testament, roughly 600 years before. In Habakkuk 2.4, he would say, look at the proud one. His soul is not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. You know, and what really stuck out to me in that verse is when he says in the beginning of there, he says, look at the proud soul is not upright. Church, faith, true saving faith is always outside of ourselves. If we are ever finding saving, sustaining, confident faith from within ourselves, then we have missed it. 
Listen, that is how the world functions. The world tells us that every bit of strength we need to do anything in our life comes from within us. That is the, that is the Disney theology. That tells you that everything you need is built within you. And if you look inside of yourself, then you'll find everything you need to accomplish what you have. But I don't know about you, but when I look within myself, I find a lot that's messed up. I find a lot of ways that I fail. I find a lot of ways at which I am broken. And it doesn't matter what paths I take back to myself, I still find brokenness. I still find insecurity. I still find in in inability. I still find weakness. But Paul tells us, he says, look, no one is justified by, before God by the law or by your works or by your ability to earn God's favor or earn God's salvation. He says no one is saved by that. And listen, it's not just me saying that. He says the prophet Habakkuk said that over 600 years ago, that this has always been God's plan and that if we are living under the law, then we are living as that proud one, that one who lives by his own strength, by his own abilities, by his own works. And if that were the case, then there would be a point at which Jake could say, listen, I am saved by faith in myself. And so that if I could do anything, I could it all together. I've really done well for myself, right? I've really accomplished a lot. But then Paul would write to, to the Ephesians when he's talking about salvation by grace through faith alone, uh, by faith alone. In that same section in verse 9 of Ephesians 2, and he says that it is not a result of works so that no one could boast, so that there is no proud one, so that there is no one that is standing up saying that it's because of what I accomplished. Then Paul would again write in Romans 1, 17, for the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that comes by faith from start to finish. He says, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Church, Faith starts it, faith keeps it, faith finishes it. And that faith is not a faith that is in me. In Romans 1.16, right before that, he's talking about the gospel of salvation, that, is the, that the gospel is the power uh, of salvation for those who would believe. It's not the gospel of me, but it's the gospel of salvation through Jesus. And so it's a faith that is not of myself, but it is a faith in Christ. It is a faith in what he has done and what he has accomplished to be justified when we talk about being justified, it's to be brought out of a state of guilt, of cursedness, into a state of acceptance. And so what we are talking about, we're talking about a, a, a way, a path that takes us underneath a, a curse that does not lead us out from shame, does not lead us out from guilt, does not lead us out from the verdict of guilty. And then we're talking about a path that Paul is differentiating between these two paths. He says the other path is faith. The other path leads us out from a state of guilt and cursedness into a state of acceptance. And he tells us in Galatians, uh, Galatians 3.12, he says, But the law is not faith. These things are not the same. You cannot have faith and the law as paths to salvation. You cannot have a list of do's and don'ts and faith in Christ. Those things do not intermingle. A church cannot tell you that you must do this, 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 and this to get salvation. Oh, and have faith in Christ. He says those, those are not roads that lead to the same destination. He said on, on the road to the law, it leads you to cursedness. It leads you to the curse. It leads you underneath the shadow of guilt. It leads you underneath the shadow of shame. The ruling principle of the law is not faith. The ruling principle of the law is works. The law is based on doing, not trusting. 
the path to approval by the law and faith do not run together because the law is not faith. Faith cannot cohabitate with the law for salvation. There is no intersection of faith and the law. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Because even if we, in our greatest attempts to follow the do's and don'ts, even our greatest attempts at being perfect people, perfect Christians, perfect parents, we could have ourselves fooled into thinking that we've done that. But even in that, even when we think we have it all together, we are still falling under the curse. That doomed one, that separation, that no hope associated with it. Then he continues in uh, Galatians 3.12. He says, the one who does them, talking about doing the law or living by the law, uh, the one that does them shall live by them. And to live by them is to be defined by their judgment, to be defined by their legal verdict, that if we are living by the law, if we are living based on our ability to uphold the law or to do the do's and don'ts or to do everything right, to be the best, to never fail, to never make a mistake, to never, uh, to never tell a white lie, to, to never have a bad thought, to, to miss the opportunity to capture that thought like we're told to, that if we... If we or living by accomplishing a living by the world system where it's by performance, then we will be defined by its judgment and its legal verdict. Because what does the law tell us? The law tells us that we're guilty. And the law tells us because we're guilty, there's a verdict. No sinner can keep the law in its entirety. And so to depend on it puts us under the law's curse. You know, and so the question for us is how, how can I know if I'm living under the law? I think that's a fair question for us to ask ourselves this morning. How can we know if we are living under the curse of the law? And it's simple as this. If we aren't living by faith in Christ, we are living under the law. Even if we aren't living by the law. Can we, can we, can we kind of navigate that together? If we aren't living by faith in the work of Christ for our salvation, then we are living under the curse of the law, even if we aren't actively trying to live by the law. So anyone who hasn't believed in Jesus for their salvation is living under the curse of the law, even if they aren't actively wanting to or trying to live by the law. Or even as a Christian, if we say we have put our faith in Jesus, but we are, but we are living by a, a, and trying to earn God's approval and his acceptance by the law, then we are reestablishing ourselves under a curse, under the shame, under the guilt that comes with that, to put dependence on our performance. You know, and this leads to anxieties. This leads to insecurities. This leads to, uh, to, to people stepping away from the faith, as we've talked about, because they feel like it doesn't matter what I do or what I still feel shame. I still feel like I don't have a place. I still feel like God doesn't want me. God doesn't accept me. God doesn't forgive me. And that's because we are living under a mindset of the law that is continuously on this, uh, this, this carousel of curse, of condemnation, of guilt, of shame. We're never finding the end of our sin. We just keep finding ourselves at the results of it, at the judgment of it, at the verdict of it. You know, we live with this sense of condemnation constantly 
But as Paul always does, he does not stop there. He continues on. And the second thing this morning, and I'll be done, is not only is, it, is, is for us to understand that living by the law, it is all of the law or none of the law. But Paul gives us the solution in this, is that living, living by faith in Christ is all for nothing. Is all for nothing. Galatians 3.13, he says this. He says, Christ redeemed us. The word redeemed means to rescue from loss. And it's not just rescuing, but it's paying a price to rescue. It's a buying back. It's a purchasing out of. You know, and, and for me this week, this is kind of the best illustration that I could come up with that helped me make sense of it, is that it's kind of this idea of breaking a prisoner out of jail that is on death row. You know, if I went, if I had a friend of mine that was in jail and he was on death row, if I broke him out, if I rescued him from that, for a moment he would be free, right? But what would still be present? What would still be present is the legal demands for whatever he did. And what also would be present is the legal demands for the sin that I committed. That I, I did something illegal. I didn't satisfy the legal requirements of whatever he had done. I just rescued him out of it temporarily. And so what happens is me and this fella, as I've saved him from prison and all my friends here, I would do that for you. I would try to rescue you. I would break you out if I could. But what would happen is we would live on the run, right? We would never be able to find a place of comfort. We would never be able to rest. We would constantly be living our life with our head over our shoulder, wondering when are they going to come back for us. And not only are they going to come get me and, and, and accuse us and hold us, uh, hold us accountable to the, to the, to the legal, uh, to the law breaking that had happened initially, but also we've added on top of that. There's more legal uh, action that will have to be required, more punishment. There's more wrong that's been done. So it just continuously stacks up. So we live this life with our, with our, with our eyes constantly looking behind us, constantly afraid of what's going to come get us. And so a lot of times I feel like we approach our Christian life with that attitude, like Jesus rescued me from prison and now I'm on the run. Me and Jesus are on the run. And if God ever catches up to us, like we treat God like he's that state trooper that pulls up behind us and we get nervous and then he turns on the lights and we think, oh, we're done now. Too many of us are living our Christian life in this way that God, God rescued us from prison. We were on death row under the curse. God rescued us from prison, but that the legal system is still after me, that God is still after me because I'm still a sinner, because I'm still broken, because there's still all these things that I did in my past. There's still all these things that, I, that, I've, that I've, I've fallen short in, all these things that I've done wrong. And that everything I do from this point, it just stacks on top of the legal demands and the legal uh, action meant to be taken against me. But the next part of this is where we forget and we're preaching the gospel to ourselves constantly is so important and so valuable and having gospel context in our families, in our relationship, in our marriage, in our local churches. This is why this is so valuable and why Paul says this and we miss this as Christians and we live our lives on the run instead of understanding this. In Galatians 3.13 he says that he redeemed us from the curse of the by becoming a curse for us. By becoming a, a curse for us. For us means on behalf of. 
Church, so what this is saying is that Jesus was treated as a sinner. He didn't just set us free. He didn't just break us out, but he took our place. Listen, Jesus didn't pull us out and break us out and say, come on, let's go. Let's get out of here before they find us. No, Jesus said, listen, I'll step into the cell for him. I'll take the death row sentence on his behalf. You let him walk. Because in this, when Jesus took our spot so that, the, so, so that there would be no chase, there would be no apprehension needed because the legal demands of the broken law could be satisfied still. Because the death penalty that would be required would be fulfilled. So that me as a believer this morning, if I put my faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, I don't have to live my life on the run. I don't have to live my life afraid that the sins of my past will catch me. I don't have to live my life that the sins of my future will condemn me. Because Jesus took my place. He did not break me out and now I live on the run. He stood on death row for me. He took the death penalty on my behalf. The legal demands that were on my life have been satisfied. Past, present, and future have been satisfied. You know, a lot of times in churches, unfortunately, we don't like to talk about or acknowledge the curse. Churches just don't like to talk about sin, don't like to talk about hell, don't like to talk about the weight and the effects of the curse on us. But church, unless we could acknowledge the curse, we never truly see the cross for what it is. Unless we can see the bad news, we'll never truly see the beautiful silhouette of the good news. We'll never truly see what it means that God incarnate, Jesus Christ, came, bore my sin, became a curse for me. He didn't just take the curse, he became the curse. He became the condemned one. He became the one with no hope. He became the one that was doomed. On my behalf. And what in the world had I done to deserve it? What had any of us done on the gravity of what God has done for us? What, you know, why would we even attempt to earn God's favor? When Jesus has done so much for us. Now, does that mean that it's an excuse to sin? And listen, we've already talked about that, and we'll talk about it more as we move forward in future weeks. But it is not an excuse to sin, but it's an excuse to live. It's an excuse to draw our children to it. It's an excuse to share it with the people around us. It's, a, it's an excuse to use our circle of influence and tell them about this Savior that came, that lived and died, that there is historical evidence, that there is manuscript evidence to back up this book more than there is any other historical book in history that tells us that God came to earth in the form of a man and bore the sin of humanity, bore the curse of humanity on our behalf so that we would not have to live life on the run, but that we could live life in the Christian liberty and freedom that God has so preciously given to us. Ooh. 
In this act, your theological term for the week is substitutionary atonement, that Jesus took our place, that the penal system required a punishment, and Jesus stepped into that place for us, that the legal demands of our sin were met. Past, present, and future, Jesus took my place. He became the cursed one so that I wouldn't have to be the cursed one. Through this, God purchased us from the slavery of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I love how Paul in Corinthians, as he said, Look, God has done this for you. Christ has done this for you. And so you were bought with a price. Do not be bound by men. Do not be confined by the limitations that the world puts on you. Don't let anyone tell us that as a Christian that we do not have liberty. Do not let people tell us that as a Christian that we do not have the freedom to worship God. That we would stand firmly and confidently and that that everything we do in our life isn't just for the sake of freedom and liberty, but it is for, in in Corinthians 6.20, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for the glory of God, that we would use our body, we would use our freedom, we would use our life to glorify God. That he brought us into blessings by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 to finish this out, he says, Cursed is everyone who, ha- is, who is hanged on a tree. Again, Paul just so beautifully showing the cohesiveness of the Old and New Testament. Is referencing a verse from Leviticus. Because what he's showing us here and what he's reminding us is that the Jews' mode of punishment was stoning. Jews did not crucify people. The Roman government crucified people. But when this is referenced in cases of shameful violation of the law, the body was hung on a tree and exposed for all to see after death. And what this, what this was meant to be is it was meant to be a great humiliation. It was meant to be a sign of divine rejection. And so when he says this in reference to Jesus, what he is reminding us of is that Christ takes our humiliation. He has taken our rejection. As Christ would be on the cross, he would say, he would say, why have you forsaken me? As he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus took our divine rejection because of our sin, because of our lawlessness, because of our rebellion. Jesus took our humiliation on the cross. He took our rejection rejection on the cross so that we could stand as Jesus stands. You know, that is the beautiful truth that we so often miss in churches. You know, we talk about what Jesus has done for us, that the shame and the guilt and all those things, that he was regarded by God as a sinner. But what we too often forget is that our receiving the blessing means that we are regarded by God as if we are perfectly righteous and flawless. Do you understand? Do you see that exchange that has happened? That Jesus is seen as wicked, 
Jesus was seen as humiliated. Jesus was seen as rejected for us. We exchanged. We gave that to him. And what did Christ give to us? We sang about it in, 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 in the, our, one of our songs this morning. We'd be clothed in his righteousness that Jesus imparted onto us. That he, he, he imputed to us his righteousness. So that when God sees us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. He does not see me. And, and, and what it is is that Jesus' righteousness did not make my righteousness good. No, he took my righteousness, which was filthy rags and hung. But he gave me his righteousness to be clothed in. So when God would look to me, he would see flawlessness. He would see perfection even though I know I am far from perfect. My legal standing before a holy God is not dependent on my righteousness, but is dependent on Jesus' righteousness. Salvation means more than forgiveness, church. We do not simply have our slate wiped clean. We are also become perfect in God's sight. And remember, we're talking about our status before a holy God, we are not talking about, remember, we're talking about something we've said before, an already but not yet. The already as a believer is that we are justified, we are made right, we are saved before a holy God, but the not yet is that we still live in this broken flesh that is imperfect, that we still live in this broken flesh that desperately needs faith, and that's when we talk about this faith that carries us, this faith that grows us, this faith that changes us and molds us and sanctifies us and, and, and creates us into that image of God over the, the, the course of our life. You know, too often churches present it that the moment that you get saved, your life immediately changes to this point where you have no desire for sin anymore, that the things that used to be drawn into before no longer affect you. But then the reality check is, day one we wake up, and we still want those things that were, that were sinful, right? We still think the same way we thought before. And so then what we've convinced ourselves is, well, if I still think that way and feel that way, I must not be saved. God must not really have done anything with me. But like we've talked about, that our faith and our growth is a process that begins by putting our faith in the work of Jesus first and then relying on that faith through the course of our life. And so the question for us is this morning, what are we reliant on? The answer, this is the question we have to answer in our lives. What are we relying on? Is our value, our identity, our life dependent on performance, success, and being the best? You know, in that, we feel we are good people closer to God than those who don't perform. You know, are we dependent on the, the circumstances around us? Are we reliant on, on our success in our jobs, in our, in our parenting, in, 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 in our day-to-day? -day? Are we reliant on those successes to define us? And if we are, then we are living under the law and continuously placing ourselves under the curse and the judgment and the rejection and the verdict that comes with that. Instead of putting faith in Christ on the cross, becoming the cursed one on our behalf, absorbing God's divine rejection of sin on our behalf. And he's allowed us the chance, church. He's allowed us the chance to become perfect in God's sight, to begin living in the freedom that comes 
through that Christian liberty that is present in that love of Christ, in that sacrifice of Christ, that sin has damaged us, sin has damned us, sin has brought us into a verdict of guilty, and that there is a legal requirement for that sin, but Jesus has become that curse for us, that if we would put our faith in Christ, that that legal requirement would be met and that, that we would have no excuse. We would have no excuse to stand in this place and worship. We would have no excuse to talk about Jesus with our kids. We would have no excuse to pray in front of our kids. You know, we don't want to pray. We don't want to read out loud. We don't want to teach. We don't want to sing. We don't want to serve in church because we don't feel worthy of it. Listen, based off your own work, you're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. I'm not worthy to read a single word out of this book to you. But my standing before a holy God and your standing before a holy God is not based off of your performance, but off of God's promises to save us through the work of Jesus on the cross. And so the greatest thing that we can do with our day-to-day is reevaluate our reliance. Are we relying daily on the faith that we have in Christ and His work of saving us, bringing us to the table of God, providing us with the strength we need to navigate and to grow you know, too often we, we go to churches and they tell us you need to work on your works. Work on being better. Work on being better. Work on being more perfect. Work on looking the part. Work on, you know, we can, you can go to a lot of places this morning that are dressed very nice. That walk into that church and they act like and they tell you and they, their life is perfect. Their family is all together. Everything is good. Work on your works. Work on looking good. You can go to a lot of places this morning that will do that. Listen, I, I told when me and Garen started this church and we and the first group of people came in, I told them very clearly, I am not perfect. We are not perfect. We are a lot of imperfect people seeking a perfect God. And the worst thing that we could ever do is to come in this place and pretend like any of us have it all together because I rely on Jesus constantly every single day for my salvation not just the moment I was saved but every day to carry me through in his work and not my own amen that I need him in his work daily so if I work on anything I'm not going to work on my works I'm going to work on my faith listen if you want to be obedient in your faith, if you want to be obedient in your Christian life, work on your faith, not your works. If you work on your works, your works will fail. If you work on your works, your works will fail. If you want your work to be successful, work on your faith. Work on your understanding of Jesus. Work on your understanding of God and what he's done for us. Work on your understanding of his word. Work on your relationship with the holy God. And it's in the midst of that that our lives will respond appropriately to the level of faith at which we have. Listen, our faith is only as big as our understanding of the object of our faith. If our faith, if the object of our faith is a holy God that sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for sinful man, if we could really wrap our mind around that and grab a hold of that, listen, then the, then the action of our faith, the work of our faith will follow. Church, focused on Christ, delight in Christ, meditate on on Christ. And then I'll leave you with these questions and I'll finish up. Whatever we live by essentially is the bottom line of our lives. What gives us meaning, what gives us confidence, what gives us definition. I ask you to ask yourself this morning, what do you live by? Do you live by performance or do you live by his promises? 
What is your life based on? And you know, and in these things, if you lost it, would it make you feel as if there was nothing left to live for? You know, when our life is defined by and dependent on what I do and how I do it, I'll always come to the end of the road leading back to the curse. But when our life is dependent on Christ, He has taken the curse at the cross. And what we'll find, even in our failures, is we'll come to a realization of grace. And that in the midst of our failure, we don't find the end of the road, but we find a new beginning. We begin again. Because that's what we find in Christ, in the grace of God, is we find begin again. Under the curse, we find the end. We find doomed. We find no hope. But in the cross and in Christ, we find begin again, even in our failure, begin again. Church, I pray this morning that we would actively seek that faith, rely on that faith that is in Jesus becoming a curse for us and giving us the Christian liberty that we need to live for our families, for our spouses, for the people that we interact with in our day-to-day, in our workplaces, wherever it may be, that we would rely on the faith that we have in Christ and His work on our behalf. Church, let's pray this morning.